All right. Are we all set to start? Good? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, welcome back to our class on Revelation. We are nearing the close of chapter 14. Maybe we're about halfway through 14. And that then is nearing the close of what is called the interregnum, this intermediate kind of stage in Revelation between uh, the second and third cycles of seven. Just to refresh your memory very briefly, this begins back in chapter 12. You have the vision of the woman and the dragon. The woman gives birth. The dragon tries to eat the child. The child is taken up to God. We see the child as the, as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so no place is found for the devil, the accuser who accuses the brethren day and night, and so he is cast out by Michael down to earth. He is waging war against the woman and her offspring. So that is the, the devil against the church and all of us, her offspring. And just as there is a trinity, there is an anti-trinity. So the, the devil, the, the red dragon, uh, brings up, conjures out of the sea the first beast, and then up out of the land the second beast. We've talked about these as being, broadly speaking, uh, political tyranny. That's the beast from the sea and uh, false religion and religious tyranny um, from the beast of the earth. We've talked about how the beast of the earth causes people to marvel, and it was pointed out that, uh, you know, with its, with its miracles, it causes people to worship the first beast. And someone in this class, I won't say the name, just don't want to embarrass him, but I, I think it's, it's absolutely true that as you look at this, in our age, how this, how this reads in our time and how we see the world around us through the lens of revelation, science is the magic word. And this, this idea of science can do everything, and science tells us everything, and, and you, know, you, don't even have to, you don't even have to know what you're talking about. You don't have to know what the scientific method is any statistics, any facts whatsoever. You just, with a wave of the hand, you don't believe in science. You've just demonized someone's position. And I do believe this because I believe in science and uh, you've just given perfect authority to your position. So we see this functioning, this sort of pseudo-religion of science says so, functioning in our, in our time, causing us to worship government and the power of the government. So because, because science, we need to listen to what government tells us. Uh, for example, for example, science tells us that you'll catch the coronavirus if you're at church, but not if you're at a Biden-Harris uh, rally or celebration, as you saw, um, which, which is pure religious discrimination, right? Pure religious discrimination uh, because, because the, the, the false gods and the true God are revealed in our own, in our own sphere. So it's one thing to grasp Revelation as written in its original first century context. It's another thing to learn from Revelation the lens through which to see and interpret our world theologically. And that's ultimately the goal of a work like Revelation. All right, over and against this deceiving second beast that comes from the earth and marks everyone on the hand and the forehead with his 666, over and against this comes the Lamb. And this is chapter 14. The Lamb comes marking everyone with the name of the Father and the Son on the forehead, claiming them as his own. This beast from the earth looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. This, uh, this lamb looks like a lamb and speaks like God. <laughs> and so we know who this is. With him are the 144,000. Again, a glorious and militaristic picture of the, of the church, the church militant the church doing battle on earth, a theme we'll get to even more so as we go on through Revelation. And then follows the message of the three angels where we left off last week, or excuse me, two weeks ago rather. 
Chapter 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. In other words, this is gospel in the wide sense because it is a, it is a call to those who dwell upon the earth to se separate themselves from the trinity of evil, those who pose and pretend to be gods, and to worship the one true God. Not the beast that comes out of the sea, but the one who made the sea. Not the beast that comes out of the earth, but the one who made the earth, the only true and living God, who, by the way, has this eternal gospel and good news already revealed countless times in Revelation, salvation through his Son. The Lamb who is slain for sinners, the Lamb who now stands forever making intercession for us. So the first angel brings this eternal gospel. The second angel, and I want to touch on this and then read you just a bit from Brighton, which I didn't do two weeks ago, uh, verse 8 of chapter 14. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now Babylon is the first, uh, this is the first mention of Babylon, though I spoke on it at some length, as we went through the first time, uh, Babylon, the ancient enemy of God's people, the ones who finally destroy the temple in 586 B.C. Um, and sweep up Judah, the, what remains of God's people, uh, they remain in captivity in one form or another, not under the Babylonians, of course, but in one form or another, up until the time of Christ and up until the destruction of the second temple in 70 A.D. All right, well, this angel... He follows, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And as I mentioned last week, here begins, here begins a really, really interesting sub-theme, if you will, on uh, wine and cups. <laughs> and on the one hand, the, the wine of, of evil and the cup of wrath. On the other hand, the, the wine of forgiveness, the cup of salvation. Um, these things juxtaposed in the same way that we see the, the mark of the beast as a kind of anti-baptism. The true baptism having the name of the Father and Son written on your forehead. Now we see a kind of anti-sacrament. An anti-sacrament. Um, so what, what she gives, Babylon the Great, what she gives uh, the nations to drink is the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Again, just to, just to put this in stark contrast, it, what, what wine does Christ give the nations to drink? Yeah, the, the wine of his blood for what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins. So you can see the difference. You can see that. I mean, we're talking about drinking blood, <laughs> Right? Um, she made all nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. And we're going to see how that, how that becomes very graphically a bloody image. Um, because as goes, the, as goes the sexual immorality, so goes the sacrifice. As goes the sixth commandment, then goes the fifth commandment. Um, I mentioned just in passing how there's this, this connection that plays all the way through the Old Testament in Key texts like David and Bathsheba and then the death of the child um, where, where sexual immorality and then death go together, sixth and fifth commandment are so often tied. And of course you see this all throughout the Old Testament in the sexual immorality of the false uh, religions all around, the religion of Yahweh, the faith in, in the one true God, and how that is constantly a practice of sexual immorality. And then how the other gods of the time demand sexual immorality, uh, sometimes in, in terms of, uh, oh, what do you call it, fertility rites and rituals and this kind of thing. And then uh, one of the inevitable byproducts, or at least connecting false religions, becomes the sacrifice of, of infants, the sacrifice of babies. And so you see all throughout the Old Testament this, this form of sexual immorality uh, accompanying abortion. And these accompanying the worship of the, of the false gods. So you don't have to scratch the surface very hard, do you, to see that alive and well in America today with all of our science and all of our technology. 
<laughs> it's really the same thing. I mean, do not be deceived. The whole system is set up. I was lamenting this the other day. The whole, I, I really ought to write this down so I can get it all full in my head. It's just depressing. Uh, but, but the whole of our society is, is increasingly designed to simply function as sexual immorality. How, how so? Well, it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg where you start, but of course, if you're lucky enough to make it out of the womb, <laughs> there's the first thing, right? If you're lucky enough to make it out of the womb, there's the first indication something is seriously wrong. Then, very early on, you become indo- you're being indoctrinated into the LGBT rainbow stuff and the sexual immorality. Very, very young. Very, very young uh, in our public schools. Increasingly, there are movements among us to force children into this education, to take children away from parents who refuse this education. We're not there yet, but you can sure see it. You can sure see it right right there. The handwriting's on the wall. Uh, Attempts to economically oppress uh, anything other than public schools so that public schools gain the funding so that public schools become the only option so that you have to have your kids catechized in the LGBT catechism class. Uh, Also grooming them. Grooming them and desensitizing them from a very early age so that, so that the boys immediately from puberty forward, are, if not earlier, are enslaved to pornography. And the girls uh, become willing participants in living pornography, or i.e. worshiping sexual freedom. And or the latest, the latest movement in this. It's like, have you noticed, have you noticed the legalized sex, legalized sex work kind of mantra sort of fade into the background? Yeah, because technology is erasing the need for that. And increasingly, our girls, young girls, even underage girls, are joining, um, what is it called? Uh, the, latest, the latest phenomena of this sick, sad thing. Um, only fans. Only fans. So you set up your camera in your room and your only fans account, and you have, you have guys come pay, and then they're your audience. So it's, it's basically, turning, basically turning prostitution uh, widespread. So widespread, it doesn't need to be made illegal, it, it is, or made legal, I mean, it already, is, uh, it already is completely free. Okay, so this is what we're grooming our boys and our girls to, utterly destroying, utterly destroying marriage. And, and you can see that the, num, uh, the numbers of marriages are just tanking, people not even getting married. Okay, why, why get married? People so damaged that when they get into marriage, marriage is doomed, it's not going to work. And, then, and usually, of course, kids are brought in, and so what do the kids experience? The doomed marriage, and written into them is that marriage is disaster, anything but marriage, and so up comes another generation, adamant against uh, God's order, and willing participants in the... Um, no-fault divorce, of course, has been a disaster. Arguably, you can trace this all to no-fault divorce. Um, no-fault divorce, simply just husband and wife severing that union and, and thus uh, destroying, destroying the sanctity of marriage uh, f- for all involved, children, extended family, society, everything. I mean, the lie we've told ourselves is, hey, we're, we're two consenting adults. We can consent to a divorce. We can have a friendly divorce. It doesn't affect anybody but us. It's not your business. Well, that's completely wrong. A divorce is a societal act. It's a public act. Uh, the government is all too willing all too willing to support divorce. There's an entire industry based on divorce um, that is profiteering off of your divorces. And those are the lawyers who are there to suck everything up so that once you get everything settled, there's nothing to settle. Uh, or or um, what is increasingly happening, and you can trace this probably, uh, certainly back to feminism, but probably earlier to that, probably honestly to something so innocent as women's suffrage. Not that I'm against women voting, but what women voting has done in our perception is it's divided the family. There's no longer a family unit that gives its one vote through the head. There are now two heads. There are now two individuals. And the family begins to be perceived as just two individuals in partnership, and that partnership can be broken any time. Feminism kicks in and says women, all the males who have been... uh, housing you and feeding you and clothing you while you take care of the house and the kids and all that inglorious, terrible, horrible work that God loves and praises and thinks there's nothing higher than. Uh, While you're doing all that terrible work, your husbands are tyrannizing you and they're out 
um, living, li living easy. So you've got you've to take them down a notch. You've got to get into the workforce yourself. Okay, so what did that do? We all got instantly doubly rich, didn't we? Having two people in the... Oh, no. Oh, no. Cost of living escalated. So now we've got two people outside of the home, and we're making the same amount we made with a one-worker income. Well, where are our kids when, two workers, when you've got mom and dad working outside the home? They have to be in school. Up go the costs. There goes the necessity to have not private school, but public school. Again, your kids are fed into the system. Uh, when your wife thoroughly indoctrinated with, um, thoroughly indoctrinated with feminism, decides she's had enough of you, um, usually, usually what she does, first and foremost, is to, to flex her muscles, is she instantly says, uh, no, uh, you know, I appreciate you and all, husband, but we're, we're done with the marital bond. We're done with the marital union. What Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians simply doesn't apply. No more sex. We've got our kids. That's all we need. That's very frequently what's happening out there. And then, and then the husband does his best to put up with this, goes into Christian counseling, maybe goes to his pastor. There's no recourse. There's nothing that can be done, although pastors and congregations rightfully should say that's fraudulent, it's a violation of God's word, it's a sin, and someone ought to ultimately be excommunicated if they hold to that. But no one has the cojones to do that because why? Feminism. So the husband is without help, and no one's willing to help because what ultimately is the female's leverage? I'll just divorce you. I'll just take half your money. And if that's not enough, guess who stands there to take care of me? The government. So husbands are tossed and thrown to the curb, all while we're being told patriarchy is the problem, and, and it's husbands who are uh, domineering and dominating everything. It's actually husbands who are cowering in the corner with no, with no power whatsoever, silently suffering the abuse of whatever it is a female wants to do. This, by the way, feeds back into why none of the boys want to get married anymore. They're smart. <laughs> why on earth? I mean, what, is, what, does I do, what does I do do for me as a young man, right? Um, what does it do? I, I, I'm, I'm probably already getting what I need anyway, maritally speaking, okay, outside of marriage. Um, so what is marriage? What's the incentive towards marriage? And then what's the legal? As soon as you're married, you what? You've just bound yourself to paying for child support or whatever else uh, the lady can take you for as soon as she gets tired of your antics. It used to be, it used to be, you remember the rabbinic statements? Um, that the, the rabbis would go so far as to say, you can divorce your wife if she burns the toast. You remember that? And we all scoffed and laughed. Um, I mean, think of the power that the, that the man has and the potential for abuse that he has in that, in that system, in that setup. Um, you can see this. You can see this where uh, it's alive and well in the minds of the Hebrew people where, they, where, where it's just, hey, just write her a certificate of divorce. That's all you have to do. That question even comes up. And, and Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, it is this way. But from the beginning, it was not so. And what do Jesus' own disciples say? First century Jewish males trained in the Old Testament scriptures. What do they say? Well, if that's the way it is, it's better to not even get married. <laughs> okay. All right. Now see. Now see how everything has completely flipped on its head. Now the man gets divorced for burning the toast. This is why... Um, I've I checked very recently. Uh, well, first of all, first of all, it's in Orange County, I think. If I'm not, if I'm not confusing these statistics, Orange County has much higher divorce rate than than other places in the country, up in the seventy percent. And the vast majority of those, initiated by women. Initiated by women. Okay, so what's really going on here? To fly back out, the government. The government is, I mean, this is a bitter pill that I've, I've had to swallow myself. The government is married to your wife. She's just letting you stand in as long as you'll behave. The government owns your children. The government is just letting you stand in as long as you behave. Step out of line and watch how fast, uh, what is it called? CPS, Child Protective Service, comes in and snatches your own child away from you because they know better than you. 
your, your wife gets fed up with you or the government gets fed up with the way you're treating your wife, out you go, just like that, and you will be made to pay and fund. So we husbands are, we men are actually in this culture, in this society, the lowest on the totem pole and pretty much the foot rag of everyone. That's the great lie of feminism and the great lie. And I know that some of you are deeply nodding and um, some of you can't believe I'm saying the things I'm saying. That wouldn't be for the first time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I challenge you, think on this. Everything is so upside down. Now, the point is, the point is, Everything feeds back into this, this idea of we want the family unit destroyed. We want the family unit destroyed. We want everyone having sex with everyone. Abortion is necessary to have that happen. Thus, thus much, 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 much of the passion behind uh, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, you know, assuming when everything finalizes, that's who we have. And it's not final as of right now yet. Um, but much of the impetus and passion behind them is abortion on demand. But it's not strictly abortion on demand. In fact, they want to lie to themselves and tell it's not a human being that's dying. What's really, what really do they want? Sex on demand. And so you see the connection again then between the Sixth Commandment and the Fifth Commandment, um, sexual immorality and the death of children. And at the height and, and at the head of it all, government. Okay. So now you can start to piece together how these two beasts are working and how, as the second angel says in chapter 14, verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Is that good news or not? That's like the best good news ever. I mean, when we hear this angel sing this for real and shout this for real over the over the heavens and the earth, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. <sighs> I mean, how are you not going to rejoice and leap for joy? And that is precisely the attitude that Revelation is meant to evoke, a celebration <coughs> over God's triumph over evil, and evil and the evil system being trampled underfoot, and true, true godliness, true godly and good order, of which God makes the family the head and the source of all a good order. All of, that being, all of that being restored and in fact being transformed and elevated and transcending to the point where the ultimate vision is that everything earthly family life, everything the marital relationship, everything the, the parent-child relationship, all of it together was pointing to is the family of God. So God is our Father. Effectively, the church, the woman, as our mother. Christ Jesus as our Savior and brother, of whom we are one. And the Holy Spirit indwelling all. And a closeness and an intimacy of which our family unions in this life just basically point. They can't do any more. So that's where we're headed. And that's the good news. That's God's order and design. So great rejoicing. When the first angel preaches the everlasting gospel, when the second angel uh, follows, saying, Fallen is Babylon the great. And now to the third angel, uh, chapter 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Okay, look now. This is complex imagery, to be sure, and it doesn't line up as neat and tidy as we would want, but that's not really um, what, what John is in, interested in anyway. But just compare the end of verse 8, the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, with um, here the uh, verse 10, the wine of God's wrath. All right, so this third angel is again warning. Warning. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on its forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Now, how is this a sacramental juxtaposition? Because if you receive the mark that is the name of the lamb, then you drink the cup of forgiveness. You see, as a, as a Christian, think especially in first century terms, in, in terms of adult conversion, you're baptized in order to 
commune. You receive the mark of Jesus upon your forehead, and then you drink the cup of his forgiveness. So look what the antithesis of that is. You receive the mark of the beast, and you drink the wine of God's wrath. And that's what all these angels are doing. It's like one camp or the other. You either have the mark of the beast, and you will drink the cup of God's wrath, or you have the mark of Jesus, and you will drink the cup of his forgiveness. So there's, there's kind of like another play on the sacraments here, on baptism and the Lord's Supper. All right, now, this statement is then modified. The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he, that is the one who takes the sign of the beast, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Again, because that's, that's what happens to the beasts and the dragon. That's what happens to all who follow them. That's what happens to the, sexu- to the sexually immoral and the murderous um, and all who are part of this other worldview, which simply cannot stand with God and his worldview. So off, off to torment with fire and sulfur. It is interesting that it's in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb evoking a judgment-type scene. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So in other words, this angel's message, very clearly, don't fall into that camp. (laughs) Don't fall into that camp. So three angels all bearing testimony and witness don't fall into that camp. And also, again, I think refreshingly, necessarily, for us to recover, uh, wrath is coming. Wrath is coming. Jesus himself says, we live as in the days of Noah, when the flood was coming and no one believed it. And how foolish would the preachers of righteousness have been in Noah's day if they said, well, you've heard all this stuff about God being a God of water and floods, No, I tell you, he is just a God of mercy and love. He would never destroy the earth with water. But that's precisely how unfaithful preachers are preaching today. Oh, you've heard it said that God is a God of fire and brimstone, that he's going to bring fiery wrath upon the earth. No, I tell you, God is love, and that kind of thing will never happen. They're exactly parallel. So this angel, in no uncertain terms, just like Jesus, no one in the Bible talks more about hell than Jesus, so too, this angel warns us in no uncertain terms that that's what's coming and we, are, we want to avoid it at all costs. Okay, verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, the endurance of the holy ones. That's us made holy in Christ, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Okay, those two things going hand in hand what it means to be saints here on earth. And of course, keeping the commandments of God and faith in Jesus doesn't necessarily mean keeping the commandments perfectly. No one can do that. It certainly means aspiring to keep the commandments and live according to God's will. But it also, of course, means confessing our sins, acknowledging God's will is right, acknowledging that we have fallen and can't live up to that, fallen short of the glory of God, and then receiving the grace and mercy given to us in Christ Jesus and clinging to that as our only righteousness. I mean, all of that's encompassed here in this, in this single verse. All right, so why a call for endurance? Because the temptation to join in the worship of the beasts and the dragon is going to be intense. And it's going to be long. There are many temporal and temporary blessings to just saying, okay, fine. Okay, fine. Give up on this Christian thing. Or, yeah, do the Christian thing on Sunday. Do the beast thing Monday through Saturday. That'll all work out. You know? um, yeah, and, and Jesus is so concerned about that reality. I mean, he preaches the sermon we, we heard him preach in divine service today about the, about the ten virgins. You might as well say that the ten Christians, five of whom have the form but not the substance, have the lamps but no oil, are foolish. And and Jesus instructing us very clearly, warning us very clearly, don't be them. Be the wise. Okay, um, so that's that takes us into verse 13. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? And I don't think it just means like, hey, because you're, you're out of here, you know, like, well, it kind of does mean that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, in fact, it, it really does. I'm going to go back on what I just said, because, because this is really the end of, um, this is the end, the end and climax and culmination of the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. When you pass through the waters, they will not hurt you, and through the fire, it will not burn you. I remember even as, well, not that long ago, you know, kind of being scandalized by that. Like, yeah, right, when do, when do we see that? And how does that not sort of become this Pentecostal kind of thing? I mean, the truth is because from an earthly vantage point, even if the waters get you, did they get you? No, they brought you right to God's throne. Um, and that's, that's what Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Even if the flames scorch your body, have they scorched you? Actually, no. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Um, and then so too, deliver us from evil, you know. Deliver us from evil means ultimately, ultimately, not just protect us here and now, but take us out of this valley of sorrow. I mean, that's the fulfillment. So, so blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on is like, that's like the counterpart to deliver us from evil. They're blessed because we're, we're escaping the dragon and the beast. We're escaping the, the sorrow. But I think here's where really I was trying to get at is then to die becomes a truly blessed thing because the blessed one himself died and rose. So that's how I started out. Is it's, not just this, it's not just this negative like the blessing consists of not being in this world. The blessing is also positive. We are being conformed into the image of God's Son by dying. As he dies, we die. As he rises, we rise. In and through him, then, we become conquerors of sin, conquerors of death, conquerors of the devil. And this is where, this is where he turns our shame into glory. So for all eternity, we don't live with this, like, like second-class citizens in the new heavens and the new earth with this great big black eye of, like, yeah, well, you're here, but only by God's grace. Because, you know, you guys kind of blew it and blew it a lot. No, that's not it at all. What was our shame? And this, see, this is, this is what's so fascinating. Gosh, and this is what's at the heart of Paul's call to grow and to mature as Christians because this is, the, this is the beauty of it, is God is actually crushing under our feet, under our heels, the devil's head, the serpent's head. And it doesn't look like that to us, but it sure as heck looks like that to him. Because we are conquering sin, death, and the devil. And whatever form that takes, we conquer sin by stopping. We conquer sin by repenting and confessing and receiving absolution. We conquer death by not being afraid of it in the here and now and being free in Christ to speak the truth in love. But we also conquer it when we actually rise on the last day in our bodies. We conquer the devil here and now insofar as we are able to be faithful to Christ and we will conquer him on the last day too as Revelation is going to show us very, very visceral imagery. We conquer him full and complete. And the Lord has us participate in that. That's the point. That's the call to maturity and growth is the, is the Lord Jesus is having us participate in that. So wonderful and so glorious. So, so yeah, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So here we have, so here we have um, contrasted what, what the intermediate state of hell looks like. Back to verse 10, tormented with fire and sulfur. And then going further, they have no rest. And here, in the vision of the blessed dead, they rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. 
Here is, here is one of the most important verses in terms of establishing continuity between this life and the next. And, we, and without fear, continuity without fear. God washes away all our sins and iniquities. Those aren't the deeds that follow us. But cleansed by the blood of Christ, all the good works that God worked in and through us, all the good works that we participated in with him, those follow us. Those echo for all eternity. That, by the way, is why it's worth it. And why you have Jesus encouraging us in so many places to say nothing of the rest of the apostles. I mean, Jesus' point is that not even a cup of cold water given to a little one in my name, not even that do I fail to record and reward. One of the greatest battles we have in our life right now is just this idea that it's all meaningless. And we're losing, and we're kind of tired of losing, and we're kind of tired of Satan winning, and we're kind of tired of the darkness, and we kind of find futility in everything we do. Um, and that, that, need, that means that we need to reorient ourselves because we are thinking in a utilitarian way. We are thinking in a way of like, well, it makes a difference to who? To me? To my eyes? To what I can see changing or happening, being effective or not effective? Was that ever the point? That was never the point. If God wants something to change or be affected, he can do it like that. What was the point? He's our father and we're his children. He delights when we do his will. This is, one of the, this is at the heart and center of who Jesus is. Jesus delights to do the Father's will even when it creates ostensible disaster. John 6, he preaches and teaches precisely the Father's will and almost his entire congregation is wiped out. He does the Father's will, even unto death on the cross, even though Peter and the rest forbid him and say, no, far be it from you. He is obedient even when there is perfect and complete futility and lack of wisdom and obedience all around him. He is obedient to the Father. And this is, this is such a beautiful thing because that's where a cup of cold water, you think, well, I don't know. It didn't have any effect on that child, obviously. You know, it wasn't worth anything. And to which God would say, you're missing the point. I saw it and I delighted in it. It's a microcosm of who I am to you. Like father, like son. Nothing makes me happier. Nothing makes me more proud. Nothing is more meaningful on earth than that you learn to be as I am. That's the, that's the beauty of, the, of praying the, the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. As Luther points out in the catechism, God's going to give daily bread to everyone, even without our prayers. That includes all wicked people. But we pray that God would lead us to realize this and receive our daily bread from him with thanksgiving. To realize the graciousness of God who gives unto his enemies, unto the unworthy, and then to emulate that. I mean, there's just nothing more beautiful. In the end, it's just God in you. It's just God in us, his church. Nothing else matters. I mean, all the rest of this is just kind of a pointless game. When we're up, when we're up here at the 40,000-foot level, I know we're, we're two kingdom people, you know, so, hey, we're in the left-hand kingdom, let's engage the left-hand kingdom. But we're in the right-hand kingdom, let's be in the right-hand kingdom. Let's set our minds on things above from time to time and look down and say, all of this is really, frankly, rather meaningless. My, uh, my daughter, we were watching day one of the elections. Um, I don't know what we had. I was, I was kind of getting a kick out of watching CNN because it seemed to be more objective than Fox News. I was very confused by that, so I watched, was watching. <laughs> anyway, um, the kids were so into this, so into this. But, but Genevieve mistook uh, Biden for bison. Bison. <laughs> So for a few minutes, it was, who's going to win, bison or trumpet? <laughs> and then in, the, in trying to clarify the name that it's not trumpet, it's Donald Trump, she got to thinking Donald Duck. And before we knew it, it was, it was bison versus duck. Who's, who's going to win? And I, <laughs> I, sat, I sat there marveling on it because I thought, yes, from the lips of children. Isn't, isn't this about as seriously as we ought to take this? When, when we set our minds on things above. God is perfectly in control. It's bison versus duck. Who gives a hoot? <laughs> Much needed levity. Much needed levity. 
So blessed are those who die in the Lord. That has, I mean, not only has the negative sense of like we're out of the world, but it has the positive sense of we are conformed fully into the image of Christ. When we die in the Lord, this is Ignatius, first century guy, one of the first martyrs. When we die in the Lord, we are being reborn into the image of Christ. On his way to martyrdom, he, he wrote letters and he told Christians all the way there, don't stop this from happening. If you stop this from happening, you're going to make me stillborn. Let me die that I may live. Let me, let me be put to death so that I might actually live as a man for the first time. Early Christians absorbed this theology and they saw our lives here as, as lives in utero, lives in the womb. As Paul says, the whole earth, the whole cosmos is laboring as a woman giving birth. And the moment in which we are given birth to is actually death. So blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on because we are born into the image and fullness and stature of Christ himself. And that given to us by his pure grace. But that's who we are as humans then. Those who have conquered sin, death, and the devil with him. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So verse, uh, verse 13 is everything. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. They rest from their labors. Their deeds follow them. Everything has meaning. Everything is worth it. The history in heaven is very, very different than the history on earth. You know, you go up to, you go up to heaven and you say, oh, yes, but remember, remember Hitler. Remember Saddam Hussein. Remember, who? Who? What? Oh, yes, but remember Gregory the Great and his conquests. And remember Genghis Khan. Who? That didn't mean anything. That was all just a game. What actually means, what actually has history, what actually is the new narrative told in heaven are the deeds of the saints. Our works follow them. The true heroes in in heaven are, are not going to be the big names that we have to learn in history. It's going to be the woman who puts her might, everything she has, in the offering. That's, that's going to be the tale of heaven. That's going, like, those are the instances. It's going to be Zacchaeus giving back everything he has and paying it fourfold. Those are going to be the heroic deeds. Those are going to be the great battles won. Those are going to be the things we marvel at and love to hear all throughout heaven. The whole history is going to change. Okay, we shift gears. Verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud... And seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. Now, I think we've looked enough at Daniel and the uh, Old Testament text behind this imagery. But we know that this is then the finality. This is the final image. So, what this means is this is the final image of the interregnum. This vision that began with the woman and the dragon is ending here. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Boy, that's an image, isn't it? And another angel came out of the temple. So that's the heavenly temple. Calling with a loud voice, To him who sat on the cloud, put your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now, we have every reason to believe that verse 14, this one like the Son of Man seated on the cloud is the Son of God, is Christ Jesus. He's got a golden crown and he's got a sharp sickle. Now, how is it that this angel comes from the temple and tells him, Put in your sickle and reap. This is precisely that theology that no one knows the time, not even the sun. So a word comes from the Father in the heart of the temple, it's time. And the angel comes and says to the son, reap, which is the same as judge. Now is the time to separate. So put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel who has authority over the fire. 
And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. A flood of blood. Okay, and this is, this is the final vision of the interregnum. So there is the judgment of the one who sits uh, upon the white cloud, the angels with him. There seems to be a... And it's, I think it's, I think to get here, you probably have to go with, um, with Jesus' own preaching and parables in this regard. But it is probably the case, and maybe I'll share with you what Brighton has to say about this uh, next week since we're running short on time, but it is probably the case that um, the first reaping Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That reaping probably refers to Christians. It's the Son of Man gathering us into the barn. You remember, for example, he's preaching on the wheat and the tares, and how the two are separated. And let them, let them all grow until harvest, and then when they're harvested, they'll be separated, and uh, the tares will be burned the wheat will be gathered into the barn. You see a twofold reaping here. Um, so it is probably the case, probably the case that this first one is uh, Jesus gathering in the saints. If not, you just have an image of Jesus uh, reaping and then it's how they're sorted out isn't explicitly stated here. All right, and then what happens in 17 is you have the other angel come out. He's got a sharp sickle. It seems like he's doing a different kind of reaping. And this is, it's a little strange because, I mean, typically you don't reap, with, uh, reap grapes with a sickle, right? So it's, so it's a little strange. We've got strange imagery all throughout this, by the way. Um, but but probably, probably what's going on there is it's trying to show it's the same act of reaping. It's the same harvest, if you will. But now it's not being ingathered to the Son of Man. What's being, it's, not the wheat, it's not the wholesome wheat, but really rather it's the rotten grapes, and so it's the sour grapes, the wild grapes, which of course goes all the way back to Isaiah's text and God's lament about the wild grapes. But, um, yeah, and then it's the angel who has authority over the fire, which again is analogous to Jesus' parables where the bad are burned in the end. And hearkening back to verse 10, being tormented with fire and sulfur. Okay, so put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. The angel swings his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Obviously, that's going to exclude the saints. Thus, the reading of sort of breaking these up into two aspects of the one harvest. Uh, the judgment, I mean, the, the aspect of, of gathering the unbelievers, the wild grapes, um, done immediately through an angel. Like I said, we'll, I'll, read you from, uh, I'll read you from Brighton next week. So the angel swung his sickle, gathered the grapes, and then the winepress of God's wrath. Again, we have this imagery that goes back to chapter uh, 14, verse 10. Um, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength in the cup of his anger. So again, just, just collecting our data, you can see why this isn't like a uh, neat, easy-to-put-together theme, but you have the you have the wine of wrath, and the wicked are made to drink it. And here you have a wine of wrath made of the wicked themselves, made of the blood of the wicked. So both are quite different images, but similar in theme. Uh, both ways of showing God's wrath and judgment upon the evil of the earth upon those, and again, I think it connects back to verse 8, those who 
made the nations drink the wine of the passion of our sexual immorality, and those who happily drank now are made to drink the wine of God's wrath, and then they actually become, their blood becomes the wine of God's wrath. So there, of course, um, you've probably seen where uh, uh, grapes are, are tread underfoot. That's a biblical image um, in order to extract the juice and make wine. That's a biblical image for God's wrath. And then a wine press is also a biblical image for God's wrath. And so that's, that's what this is. Um, God, God f- giving final vindication, final justice as the, uh, as the martyrs under the throne requested back in chapter 6. And again, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point. It's somewhat subject to your own creativity. But there's a kind of, there's a kind of anti-sacramental aspect here too. Because on the one hand, Christ is crushed under the winepress of God's wrath and on the cross. And thus what comes forth is the wine of our salvation, his blood for our salvation. And if you've rejected Christ, it's like you end up in the wine press of God's wrath, and it's your blood spilled uh, out, on, out upon the earth. Okay, you can see the extremely graphic nature of the blood flowing from the wine press as high as the horse's bridle. There's also a, a um, really tantalizing contrast because I think it says that they're thrown out. Yes, verse 20. The winepress was trodden outside the city. There's the trotting, the underfoot, outside the city, which, of course, by contrast, Christ dies outside the city. So you can see what's happening. Christ dies outside the city under the winepress of God's wrath for the salvation of men. Men who reject him, now Christ inhabits the city along with his people, and those who previously inhabited the city are cast out into the winepress of God's wrath, and they suffer. So, again, it's either... It's either Christ takes God's wrath over sin for you or you take God's wrath over sin. Those are, again, that's the, the binary message here. And this is, the, uh, this is the conclusion. This is the conclusion of the interregnum. So, what shall we say? It's a, it's a, long, it's a long and dramatic saga from the image of the woman with the 12 stars over her head and and the birth of Christ. What happens to the dragon being cast down? We haven't yet got to the fate of the dragon. We hear he's, and and the fate of the beasts. Um, They've been cast down to earth. In a a sense, we see, we see where they're destined for this fiery pit and that they're destined for the winepress of God's wrath. But But their fate has not yet become explicit. What has become explicit is the fate of those who follow them. And the salvation of those who follow Christ. So that's really the heretofore. And um, again, it is a call for endurance for the saints. So that's how we ought to take it. All right, that's it for today. The Lord be with you.